0: and everyone welcome to the Tuesday 31st of October 2023 episode of the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons Show podcast where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich Connecticut I'm Jeffrey Bingham your host a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich Connecticut and it's my pleasure to welcome you The Greenwich in Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates Eastern Neurologic Services Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show... Happy Halloween, everyone. We've got lots of historical hocus-pocus and hauntingly hilarious happenings from Greenwich, Connecticut's history. You'll hear about a Halloween party from the Holly Inn's Art Colony days, how Halloween was celebrated in Greenwich in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a mysterious cemetery vault over in the Bellhaven and Field Point area, odd customs, crimes and misdemeanors, and a whole lot more. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 68 Three six. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoké Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides General Neurological Consultations, On-site Diagnostic Testing, and Physical and Neurocognitive Therapy. Visit EasternNeurologic.com, that's EasternNeurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. The Mysterious Vault says the headline that was featured on the front page of the Greenwich graphic on Saturday, March 17, 1894, and opening the Mysterious Vault (laughs) <laughs> I knew you'd love that. On Saturday, May nineteenth, eighteen ninety-four, just perfect, just perfect for Halloween. I'm so glad that we can feature this for you. Now, the cemetery that I am about to uh, describe for you in both of these stories, um, it was transferred from the area of um, you know Field Point and uh, and Bellhaven, um, and um, it now is in Putnam Cemetery. I have a picture of this on the Greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com posting for uh, today's Halloween show. And, um, and I so I, I direct you to go and to, uh, to see that. But I think that you will find this particular story to be quite interesting. I certainly did. Built by smugglers, it becomes a burial place for the dead. My ancient friend's story. And again, this was in the Greenwich graphic. Um, so the story goes as follows. The railroad company, at its own expense, will reinter the bodies of the dead under the supervision of an undertaker, and such reinterment, if desired, will be in ground provided by the company. And those words were stated by H. Lynde Harrison. Um, and uh, uh, and again, the, the the cemetery that I'm about to describe for you, the or the burials anyway, were transferred to Putnam Cemetery off of Barsonage Road. These were Judge Harrison's words addressed to the railroad commissioners at the Granite Station last week and duly reported in the graphic. The business of the hour was the submission for approval of the new layout, and the locality being discussed was the private cemetery on the Duggan property near the Field Point Road. Who were these dead whose bones are to be lifted from beneath the rattle and roar of the consolidated trains? I had never heard of such a cemetery, and even Mr. Parker was in doubt about its existence. But he promptly sent a hall boy for my ancient friend, who gave me its entire store history. I repeat as nearly as I can the old man's words. Quote, "About the year 1750 there came to this town from New York one William Bush, a young man of great wealth, the only son of a retired shipping merchant." His shoe buckles were among the finest wrought silver, and his small clothes were of the choicest silk. He had the swiftest horses, the sleekest oxen, and the greatest herd of sheep of any man whereabouts, and his acres were broad and fertile. He built him a home that was the talk of the town, and when he died he left a will duly probated, January 8, 1802, that disposed of a large estate. The century in which he died is still with us, but no one in life today remembers William Bush. My knowledge of him comes from my father, who was his neighbor and who regarded him with the highest esteem. His landed property included a large part of the southern portion of the town and extended east almost to Cosgob. Its northern boundary ran across the Field Point Road near the residence of James R. Meade. The cemetery was laid out by Captain Bush, as he was called, about five years after his arrival in town, and was designed wholly for a family burial place. But in the years immediately following the Revolutionary War, the burials there were numerous and the graves were made on all sides, far beyond the present narrow limits of the cemetery. On the outskirts, many slaves were buried, and the pick and spade of the Italian during the summer uh, coming summer, will turn up many an unexpected thigh bone. Mm. The use of the cemetery has never been limited to the lineal heirs of Captain Bush, and many of his collateral heirs were buried there. Hence, we have names upon the stones of Bush Mead, Mary A. Sherwood, Matthew Meade, Mrs. Stephen Marshall, Rebecca Gilmore, Polly Meade, and Justice B. Mead. In the center of the plot is a vault the roof of which is nearly level with the surrounding ground and to one unacquainted with the fact it existed its existence would be unsuspected a weird story the truth of which has never been questioned is told of this vault and the proof of its truth will be revealed when the old vault is laid open to the sun's light before the Revolutionary War, Great Britain levied a tax upon imports to the American colonies, the West India trade being included in the impost. The tax upon sugar, molasses, and rum was particularly obnoxious to the colonists, and smuggling these commodities into the country through Long Island Sound was indulged in to a considerable extent. Smuggled goods were secreted in barns, potato cellars, amid caves, in the rocks, and in most cases beyond the reach of the revenue officers, although at times arrests and punishment followed such violations of the king's law. One night, several years after Captain Bush had laid out his cemetery and two of his children had been interred there, he saw a light moving in a mysterious way through the grounds. The next night he looked for it again, but saw nothing, and as the graves were undisturbed, the fact soon escaped from his mind. A month or two after that, he saw the light again. It came and went like the flickering of a great candle. He called his dogs, and with his flintlock over his shoulder, he strode across the fields to find nothing but a quiet burial place, with the mute white headstones of his two little children reflecting the starlight. It troubled Captain Bush, for he feared that his nerves were breaking down and that the strange lights were but the fancies of a weakened mind. So he said nothing but watched from his window and noted every two or three weeks the peculiar coming and going of the light. He observed also that on the nights when he saw the lights, a strange black schooner, long, low, and rakish, lay at anchor just outside field point. Sometimes he saw her come to anchor before the sun went down, but oftener she crawled in at the edge of the evening as the shades of night were settling across the water. That presence of this black schooner was accountable for the lights in the cemetery, he felt certain, and he may have suspected their meaning, for on one occasion in the broad daylight, he made his negro servant dig beneath the loosely lying sod of the cemetery yard, and the digging revealed the great wonder of those colonial days. Beneath the sod was a vault, unknown to the captain, and supported, strange to say, by an arch of seashells, many of them great tropical conch shells, wedged in one beside the other, and keyed in place by the battered fragments of coral reef. There was a noisome, musty smell in the place that suggested between decks of a slaver, and the slimy ooze upon the floor smacked of rum and molasses. I never heard of the value of the smuggler's treasure, but Captain Bush had all the barrels rolled into his cellar, and many a glass of that Santa Cruz rum was drank by the great open fireplace in Captain Bush's hospitable home. No one ever knew when or by whom that vault was built, but that it was built, and of seashells too, is very certain. And Captain Bush, to keep the smugglers out, he said, used it for a vault for the dead, and scores of bodies, including the old captains, were placed there in the years that followed." When the vault was torn to pieces this summer, and for the first time in 125 years, the sunlight reaches all its odd nooks and corners and touches the glimmering bits of ancient seashells, you will realize that I have told you nothing but the truth. By the way, this story is signed by Ezekiel Lemondale. If you've been listening to this podcast uh, for a long time, you know that the real person behind that name was Judge Frederick a. Hubbard. I thought that you would enjoy that. But there's more to the story, as you might imagine. This is a follow-up, and, um, and this is dated, as I said before, from May 19, 1894 in the Greenwich graphic, opening the mysterious vault. And it goes like this. It discloses a site that makes even the undertaker, Paul. It is estimated that 50 bodies were entombed here, no clue as to the identity of any one of them. The inside of the vault represented a scene that might be likened to a nightmare. Hmm. We have opened the mysterious vault that the graphic had a description of a few weeks ago, said Undertaker Mead. That would be Isaac Lewis Mead, by the way. Uh, by the way, the building that uh, is at the top of Greenwich Avenue, the uh, the English Tudor-style one, at the corner of um, of Greenwich Avenue and uh, West Putnam Avenue. Uh, that was his building <laughs> that he built, by the way. I thought I'd throw that in. So said Undertaker Mead to a representative of this paper, the Greenwich Graphic, on Friday evening of last week. Mr. W.S. Waterbury and myself are going down there early tomorrow morning, and don't you want to come along with us and see what the mysterious vault has disclosed? hmm "'Bright and early Saturday morning, "'Undertaker Meade and Mr. Waterbury, "'with their cameras and the writer, "'were at the door of this vault. "'Mr. Meade had given instructions to his men "'to disturb nothing whatsoever inside of the vault "'until after he had taken a picture of it. "'What a sight it presented, this dark recess, "'the abode of the dead, "'as we gazed inside, standing in the doorway. "'It was like a horrible nightmare "'after eating a hearty Thanksgiving dinner.' The floor of the vault was covered with a mass of debris that once were human bones. There were skulls and all the bones that make up the body lying promiscuously around. There did not seem to be any coffin or anything that looked like such a receptacle. But these had all probably rotted away and left nothing but what was white and hard. Mr. Mead thought that there must be about fifty bodies represented by these remains. It seemed to him that the coffins had been piled up one on top of another and that the lower ones had rotted away being the oldest and the top ones had gradually fallen down until finally they had become mixed in the pile of bones. Mr Mead and Mr Waterbury succeeded in taking a very excellent photograph of the inside of the vault a copy of which lies on our table as we write and it is a picture suggestive Realistic, and a shudder comes over one to look at it. One day last week, three carriages drove into the grounds of the Putnam Cemetery. They contained H. Lind Harrison, Undertaker Isaac, Isaac Lewis Meade, George G. McNall, James R. Meade, Henry Meade, Thomas Rich, and John Dayton. After some little consultation, Mr. Harrison agreed to purchase for the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad a plot of land 20 feet square situated on the west side of Putnam Cemetery. This plot was obtained for the purpose of a burial place for the bodies to be removed from the vault and the cemetery back of the mansion house, over which land the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad Company are to construct their additional tracks. The contract for removing these bodies was given to undertaker Isaac Lewis Meade, with instructions to enclose all the remains found in the old vault in one grave in the center of the lot in Putnam Cemetery and to remove all the other bodies to separate graves in this plot and to put the stones at the head or foot of them as they were found in the old place. The mound in the center of those who were entombed in the vault to have a slab over it with a proper inscription to indicate where the remains came from. On Thursday of last week, Mr. Meade, with a corps of workmen, began the work of removing these bodies. They knew where the vault was situated, and so dug down at the end of it to a distance of about three feet, and there they found the doorway of the tomb. At one time there had been a door hung on the hinges, but this had been taken away, evidently, and the aperture had been stoned up. It did not take long to force an entrance here, and by Friday the vault was open for Mr. Mead's investigation. It seemed to the workmen as though the vault was full of bodies, and those last there had determined to put in one more, and the last coffin had been placed in such a way as to give the impression that the opening was stoned up to keep it in place. In other words, the vault was as full as it could hold when the last body was put in it, which was about 30 years ago. We said that there was nothing to show the identity of the bodies in the vault, but they did find one plate on which was the name of Brown, and this was all. So far as they could judge From what little woodwork could be seen, the coffins were not enclosed in a second box. Mr. Mead very carefully and thoroughly gathered up the remains in this vault and enclosed them in a very large box, and this was interred in the mound at Putnam Cemetery. There were about thirty-five single graves in this old cemetery, and they have all been opened and the contents carefully removed to their new resting place in Putnam Cemetery. Mr. Mead thinks that this cemetery was a very old one, for he says he could not turn up the soil in any portion of it to any depth without coming across some bones. It is more than probable that this graveyard was used before the Revolutionary War, and up to within about 30 years ago, and, and was the cemetery for Horseneck. There are all the names that could be deciphered on the gravestones. Sarah, wife of Bushmead, Bush Meade, Nancy, wife of Matthew Meade, Matthew Meade, my mother, Pamelia, wife of Stephen Marshall, in memory of Rebecca, wife of William Gilmore, in memory of Justin B. Meade, in memory of Polly Meade, to the memory of David Bush, Sarah, wife of David Bush. Sarah and David and Sarah are deposited in the vault in memory of Samuel Bush, in memory of Ann Bush, Mary Ophelia, daughter of William and Mary Sherwood, Susan Denton, John Anderson, and wife. The last body placed in this cemetery was H. Jane Davis, wife of William Davis, June 17, 1867 aged 36 years. Mr. Mead expects to have all the bodies removed this week. He has superintended the work himself, and no one could have exercised more care or done the work more conscientiously and thoroughly than he has. Thus, thought the hand of time, and the march of progress compel the old to give way to the new. Best kept secret in historic Redditch, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together, thanks to a unique non-profit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1850 1850- Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining, inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends, the word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good... Your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on the job training platform with ABLIS for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates, or its graduates, emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. There was a time, an earlier chapter in my life, where I was a columnist at Greenwich time, and um, uh, I would like to draw your attention to a... um Another blog site that I have called Writings of Jeffrey Bingham I have transcribed most all of those columns and they are there uh, freely for you to look at. This is one of my favorites. And of course, the Halloween theme uh, features prominently here. The, um, uh, the title of this was Freaks and Phantoms Cavort at the Holly Inn. Of course, we're talking about the Bush Holly House. And this was published in the Greenwich Time on November 2nd, 1986. Um, and um, this is a particular uh, fun story, I think, because it is uh, about the Bush Holly House and about the um, uh, the uh, art colony and how they celebrated Halloween uh, and um, And the story goes as follows: History, dull subject to some, when revealed to its fullest, is colorful, stimulated, and even humorous. This recent Halloween holiday brings back to this diligent writer-historian an incident he ran across which occurred in the annals of local history at the turn of the century in Koskab. The occasion was a rather unique Halloween party at the Bush-Holly House on Strickland Road. In those days, it was the home of notable ladies and gentlemen who had stayed during the preceding summer season at this famous historical landmark. For an autumn evening, the Holly Inn was transformed into a haven for freaks, spirits, demons, and poltergeists. With the arrival of each guest, he or she was given a pumpkin and a knife with, with instructions to carve the pumpkin into the features of a face resembling one of the other celebrants. As one could imagine, with so many sculptors, artists, and portrait painters present, the faces on the pumpkins surely were realistic and works of art in themselves, as the Holly Inn was a favorite artist colony in those distant days. In no time at all, the autumn sun dipped low in the western horizon, yielding to the hours of darkness. With the window shades down and many fireplaces that dot the interior of the Holly Inn, were kindled with inviting blazing fires. The rooms were decorated with the carved grotesque jack-o'-lantern sculpted by those in attendance, with illuminated faces flickering with ghoulish laughter as evening set in. At 6.30, a gong reverberated throughout the halls. The time to dress for dinner in costume arrived, and the many guests clambered to the nearest dressing room, see let me do that again at 6 30 a gong reverberated throughout the halls the time to dress for dinner in costume arrived and the many guests clambered f- to the nearest dressing room available the costume worn by each guest was kept in strictest confidence until the dinner hour to say the least the costumes worn that night bordered on the eccentric The guest list that night read like a who's who of artists and Holligan patrons. Mrs. Edward Holly came as a beautiful Circassian lady, by the way, I still don't know what that is, with artist Elmer McRae as a bearded lady and his wife as a, quote, wild woman of Borneo, unquote. Miss A. Barlow and Miss Louise Cameron Walter came as Siamese twins, with Miss Mary Annabelle Phantom as a serpent dancer. Miss Theodosia de ramer Hawley as a Japanese giantess, Miss Catherine Metcalf Moody as a Bulgarian princess, Mr. H.F. Taylor as the, quote, king of the cannibal islands, unquote, Mr. George Gilman Hall as a Chinese warrior, Mrs. K. Jordan Vermilier as a vampire, plus many others. The infamous gong chimed again at 7.30, alerting the trick-or-treaters to organize in the upper hall for a parade which would, which wound itself down to the south staircase and through the rooms and veranda below to the dining room. The procession was led by Mr. Hawley, owner and proprietor of the Holly Inn, who carried a gramophone playing the brass band version of Ludwig von Beethoven's Turkish patrol march. Later, the costumed guests played at games of hide-and-seek, Blind Man's Bluff, and Happy is the Miller. As the clock struck midnight, the bewitching hour began. The celebrants descended into the cellar, where they also bobbed for apples, consulted the magic mirror, and engaged in the mystical art of palm reading, and also forecasted fate and fortune through tarot cards. At long last, the evening came to a close, as hideous, ghoulish ghost stories were told, sending many a chill up and down the spines of those present. Those listened screamishly. In the eerie flickering lights of the Hullian cellar. You're listening to the Greenwich A Town for All Season show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. And where? Well, it's Halloween. And as you might expect, um, Halloween is a holiday that keeps the police department quite busy. And there was no exception to that in 1946. And I'd like to share that with you. Um, And (laughs) it it goes as follows. Again, this is 1946. A bedeviled Greenwich police force received some 40 telephone complaints and more than 100 calls from radio patrol car patrols between 7 and 11 p.m. last night reporting annoying or destructive pranks by Halloween celebrants. While police took a breather this morning, Greenwich storekeepers, car owners, and others who left any plate glass exposed last night were busy this morning trying to scrape off or wash away, heavy scribbling and designs smeared on their windows in soap and wax. Apparently, many of the celebrants were under the spell of spirits, far more malevolent than mere witches and goblins, but despite the numerous complaints, the police made no arrests. Three fire alarms were answered, but alert firemen extinguished the fires before they could do any damage. The spirit of Halloween rode high and somewhat roughshod over Greenwich last night, Young folk in every district paraded through the streets in groups of two to fifty, garbed in some of the weirdest costumes imaginable. Masked and black-faced youngsters, some hand-in-hand, others in large groups, used noisemakers, solicited neighbors for fruit, peanuts, cawings, and in some cases stretched the limits of good fun. I'll bet they did. Many parties were given in various parts of the town as cider flowed and the flickering light of friendly jack-o'-lanterns cast an eerie glow over the festivities. Among the many organizations which held parties for the young folk was the Greenwich Boys Club, which played host to 150 of its members at a special party held in the clubhouse. As human replicas of witches, ghosts, hobgoblins, elves, and even leprechauns swaggered noisily in roving bands through the streets of Greenwich early in the evening. It was apparent as early as 7 p.m. that every window of the business section of the town would receive its quota of soap and wax. Store owners were kept busy this morning as they washed store windows with water and used gasoline and razor blades to remove wax from their window panes. Cars parked for longer than 60 seconds on Greenwich and Sound Beach avenues last night were sure to have soap-figured windows, and store and car owners alike were made aware of the fact that Kilroy had been around. As the youngsters cavorted in the trappings of pirates, witches, ghosts, and even soldiers and sailor uniforms, one lad appeared as a wounded soldier, covered with bandages and using a crutch. The police department at times thought the whole thing had gone a little too far. The entire department, on duty to quell overeager spirits, protected as well as the public and private property from the acts of zealous hoodlums. A hive of activity from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. last night, uh, the augmented police for, uh, dusk force of the police department handled over 40 telephone complaints of damage to property and almost 100 radio messages from patrol cars reporting extra-legal activities of the Halloween crowds. Three fire alarms were answered by Sound Beach and Costco Fire Department volunteers who extinguished brush and rubbish fires started by firebrands. None of the fires resulted in damaged property, according to Fire Chief Stuart M. Potter, who was on hand through the night, prepared for the worst. Despite calls from irate property owners that fences had been knocked over, windows broken, clotheslines cut, mailboxes stolen, and houses painted, the police department made no arrests as apprehensive parents of destructive children appeared on the scene to assume. The responsibility of damage done by their youngsters. With Riverside and Old Greenwich reporting destructive acts most frequently, police perspired freely as they attempted to break up unruly bands of vandals who poured inflammables on the street and started fires in the middle of highways, broke street lights. Removed traffic signs and blocked off Sound Beach Avenue for several minutes by placing park benches as a barricade across the avenue. (laughs) Were kept uh, on the go to far corners of the town as they took into custody two cases of dynamite found near the the North Castle. I can't make that out. uh, Road at 9:45 p.m. discovered several feet of the guard rail of the millbrook of the millbrook bridge missing on west brother drive found traffic signs covered with paint on let's see, Parallel Avenue, Riverside, and looked with dismay on 50 feet of flattened fence on the property of Judge William S. Hirschberg of Patterson Avenue. As reports of missing manhole covers, mailboxes, and miscellaneous losses were investigated by by police, including the discovery of the lawn of a house by the intersection of Lockwood and Tomek Avenue's the, boys, the Greenwich Boys Club celebrated the occasion with a party for 150 of its members. Prizes for the most original costumes, pinning the tail on the donkey, and other contests were awarded to winners as the enthusiastic young crowd consumed hot dogs, soda, pop, and candy. Cider was a warm-weather casualty for the party, all available cider having been bought out by town residents before the party took place. Winners of prizes for the most original costumes were Donald Nielsen, Donald Sargent, and Philip Raymond. Other contests were Bursting the Bag, won by Ray Dahlman, Dropping Clothespins in a Milk Bottle by Billy Fudge, Whistling with a Mouthful of Soda Crackers, Walt Hickman, Pitting the Tail on the Donkey, Charles Haynes, and The High Hurdles, won by Alan Gard. In 1908, the students of the Greenwich High School, says the story that was published in the Greenwich News on October 30th of that year, have made elaborate preparations for their Halloween dance, which is to be given at the high school building this evening. The banquet hall of the school has been tastefully decorated with autumn leaves, flowers, pumpkins, etc. A large number of donuts have been ordered from a local baker, and some of them are baked thimbles, dimes, buttons, and rings. Those who get the buttons according to the old superstition will be bachelors. Those who get the pieces of money will be wealthy. Those who find the thimbles spinsters, and those who find the rings will soon be married. A variety of novel games have been planned and will be participated in, as well as the time-worn tricks that have amused people for the past three hundred years. 'Twas a jolly Halloween, proclaimed the headline in the November fourth, eighteen ninety nine edition of the Greenwich Graphic. The young people about town to make merry celebrating the evening. Halloween was observed about town Tuesday evening, and parties were numerous on that night. The old-time customs, as well as the modern way of enjoying that night, were resorted to, and much merriment was occasioned thereby. It was a stormy night. This interfered somewhat with the plans of the merry gatherings, as many were kept at home, who otherwise would have attended the parties. The rain also kept many of the small boys indoors. As a result, signs and gates were not conspicuously absent the following morning, (laughs) A jolly time was passed at the home of Miss Clara Belcher Mead on that evening when about 25, twenty friends rather gathered to celebrate Halloween. Here they enjoyed a masquerade in sheets and pillowcases, bobbing for apples, fortune-telling, and various other Halloween methods of pleasures. Refreshments were served, and about midnight the merry gathering broke up and all left for their homes. Miss Mildred Rich entertained about 30 of her friends at her home on Mason Street Tuesday evening, the occasion being a barn dance. The house and barn were decorated with Chinese lanterns and lanterns made from pumpkins, which appeared very appropriate for the occasion. About nine o'clock, the dancing began and was continued until past midnight. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas A. Meade entertained a number of friends Halloween at their home on Putnam Avenue, when a very enjoyable evening was spent. How was Halloween celebrated in 1923, 100 years ago? Well, there was a joint Halloween party at the YMCA, and it was on a Wednesday evening. This was reported in the Greenwich News and Graphic on November 2nd of 1923. The joint Halloween party of the YMCA and the YWCA that the YMCA building on Wednesday evening was a huge success. It was the annual event of the kind and was attended by over 1,000 persons. J. Garfield King, General Secretary of the Y, who engineered the party and was in charge of the decorations, is deserving of much credit. The building was gaily decorated throughout, and a spotlight which played on the black and yellow streamers in the audit gymnasium was particularly effective. Early evening, in the evening, such games as archery, where arrows were shot at toy balloons, the shooting gallery, whoop, And numerous other Halloween games were enjoyed, Mr. and Mrs. William P. Jeffrey supervising this part of the entertainment. Fully 600 people participated in the dancing in the gymnasium, music being furnished by Buchanan Serenaders of Stamford. Late in the evening, cider, donuts, crullers, cake, and coffee were served. H. Ernest Bumeyer was in charge of the dancing. That must have been really a wonderful evening. And, of course, the YMCA building that we are um, uh, referring to, of course, is at the corner of um, uh, Putnam Avenue and Mason Street. You've seen it there. And, in fact, it was recently plaqued by the Greenwich Historical Society as a historic landmark, and for, of course, obvious reasons. <laughs> In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store and Artists Cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern Building at 47 Strickland Road in Cascob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Koskab, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the artist's cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Thank you for listening to the Halloween Tuesday 31st of October, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for all seasons show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Binghamid, your host. The Greenwich Town for all seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander affiliates, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews, Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. Now contact me at Greenwich Town for all seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com Please look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, Election Day, the 7th of November, 2023. See you next week. Bye-bye now.